Welcome to Tallgrass at the Well, if I haven't met you yet. Really grateful that you're here to worship with us if you're online as well. Uh, I'm Pastor Josh, one of the pastors here. And uh, we're in a series called Radical Jesus, as you, as you just saw in the video, where we are talking about controversial topics. We're talking about, um, we, we've covered refugees, and immigration, we've talked about uh, vaccinations, we talked politics last week. So all the things, as Sarah said last week, that you're not supposed to talk about we are talking about those things. So uh, I, I think it's been a uh, uh, really enriching sermon series. And so if you've missed any of the weeks, I, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the previous weeks. Our pastors have really done uh, the hard work of research and, and thinking through together how we at Tallgrass at the Well want to position ourselves to say, this is, this is where we stand. And, and there's some uh, spectrum of beliefs on a lot of these different different issues, but this is the, the, the middle place and a lot of these uh, that we want to inhabit and we want to um, just kind of carve out for our church community. Um, at the, the beginning of every week, we have been in the, the rhythm and habit of saying a scripture together. We've actually invited you to memorize this. So if you have this memorized, you can close your eyes and do it if you want to, or if you don't, no judgment. Uh, but we, we really feel like grounding this in the internal truth of God's word, grounding this series in the internal truth of God's word was really important. And starting out each me- message, uh, the, the messages seem to be, you know, kind of turbulent, uh, high tension, that sort of thing. So, so really grounding ourselves in God's word uh, was an important, uh, you call, might call it ritual that we wanted to do. So let's say this together. This is Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So this, this scripture really should be of great comfort uh, that God's, God's word will stand forever. Uh, as fads in our world come and as they go, there's a perfect standard, a true and good and, and perfect standard that will remain forever. The, the standards of God as revealed through his word teaches us his ways or the things he finds acceptable in accordance with the way he has created the world and uh, in accordance with his, himself, his character, his nature, his essence. And it reveals what is out of bounds, uh, what we need to do to return to realignment with God. God's forever word is a bomb to those who are hurting and it's a warning to those who wish to inflict harm. And this is elucidated in today's topic as Pastor Ben talked about. We're going to talk about power and spiritual authority, uh, spiritual abuse today, power and spiritual abuse. And we're going to talk about the responsibility of power that God has entrusted to his people. So now when I say power, what I'm talking about is the capacity or ability to influence circumstances through ourselves uh, to the world and those around us. We, we usually associate power with negative connotations, especially in our world today, uh, after the 60s and, and sort of the, this, this uh, uh, young adult movement, like fight the power and fight back to those who are, import- who are in authority. We lost trust in the government. We lost trust in the military. We lost trust in a lot of other institutions. So there's this almost dismissal of power and authority today. Uh, we shouldn't have any power or authority or we should use it for our own means. We know the best way to use it. So we're going to hoard power and we're going to use it to our advantage. And so that our um, our agendas get 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 uh, uh, brought to bear, and so I, I don't want to. I, I want us to to take power in 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 both like both ways of thinking it, the good ways to use power 
and the, the negative ways, the bad ways to use power. Because we can often speak about our willpower. We have power. Our, our wills have power. That, that's the choice to bring about uh, or, or the, 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 the action to bring about a choice that we've chosen, again, to the world around us. Um, willpower is a good thing. It's a good thing to, to be in control of yourself and influence the world around you in a good way through that willpower. And we know that electricity is good. Electricity can light up a, a city. Uh, electricity can, can power up your laptop so you can catch the, the season finale of Ted Lasso. Like, that's a good thing, right? Power can be used for good purposes. And each of these examples, of course, people can mishandle power. And of course, electricity can shock you if not respected. And so when we focus just on the negative connotations though, we, like I mentioned, can slump into this uh, reactionary posture towards power where we're simply anti-authority because of the ways that we've seen it uh, misused and unfortunately sometimes the ways it's been misused against us personally. And so we do have to acknowledge the reality of the abuse of power. Abuse occurs when those entrusted with authority misuse their power, and they bring about intentional harm. Sometimes even unintentional harm is still a misuse and abuse of power. We read headlines every day about financial abuse, political abuse, physical and sexual abuse. Today, though, I I really want to hone in on spiritual abuse. And when we talk about spiritual abuse, oftentimes it does incorporate some of the other areas like financial abuse, physical, sexual abuse. But today I wanna, I wanna keep it a little broad, a little general, and talk specifically about spiritual abuse. So Andy Crouch in his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power says this, power at its worst is the unmaker of humanity, breeding inhumanity in the hearts of those who will power, denying and denouncing the humanity of the others who suffer under power, This power ultimately will put everything around it to death rather than share abundant life with another. It is also the power of feigned or forced ignorance, the power of complacency and self-satisfaction with our small fiefdoms of comfort. Power, the truest servant of love, can also be its most implacable enemy. Here is what we need to discover about power. It is both better and worse than we could imagine. We feel that, don't we? You know, I feel the, the heaviness of this topic, and, and there's often a visceral response when we talk about power and abuse because we have so often seen it misused. And though what I find interesting in, in uh, this, this, after the launch of the Me Too and the Church Too movements that is calling out uh, a physical and sexual abuse in so many different institutions, including the church, is that when we're standing up for victims and calling out abusers, the conversation from the outset is a conversation about rights that can only be understood from a Christian view of the world. So I want you to consider this. When Charles Darwin, uh, among others at the time, but mainly him, proposed that we as humans have been, uh, that are genetic descendants of single cell organisms, he turned the scientific even in, in, and even the religious communities upside down. So he, he advocated from a materialist or a physical worldview that, that just uh, uh, saw, saw an unending uh, theory of, of change and evolution from, from different creatures. And so from this perspective, the materialist perspective came uh, an advocacy for a natural selection of creatures rooted in the survival of the fittest, which means that the organism best adapted to its environment had the best chance of survival. And that meant it's most advantageous if you were at the top of the food chain and not at the bottom. 
and your species could continue to keep up uh, and ensure that you stayed there. So in other words, from the point of nature that Darwin and his contemporaries were advocating, might makes right. That's a naturalist worldview. Now, we don't oftentimes say that or hear that from our culture, but that's what a materialist worldview, if played out, it's might makes right in every sphere of society. I mean, have you ever tried to reason with a lion that he should get along with a gazelle instead of eat it? Maybe he should be maybe a vegetarian or a vegan at best. Like we know that just doesn't work in the naturalist worldview. Okay. So throughout human history, we see this playing out. People giving to their natural tendencies, having might makes right attitude towards the world. And it makes the most sense. If you, um, if you look at, if you look at um, empires, like how you ensure that your tribe or your nation state or your civilization can thrive and continue on, it's through the subjugation of other nation states and other tribes. You best ensure that you have the fastest horses and the pointiest weapons. That's how you win wars and that's how you ensure that you can survive as a collective people group. And then something happens where Christianity comes along and advocates that no, might doesn't make right. They were covertly inserted into the Pax Romana, meaning the peace of Rome, which was undergirded by the battalions of Caesar, of course. But the Pax Romana was challenged by this ragtag group of Jesus followers who said, you know, actually, scripture tells us that every human being has dignity and rights because every human being is stamped with the Imago Dei, the image of God. So it's, this is actually a, like rights and advocating for rights and personal uh, uh, responsibility. That's a Christian worldview. And yet we're arguing in the Me Too age and the Church Too age, and we think that's mainly a secular or a progressive stance. No, that's a Christian stance. Now, they, they can sometimes ignore that it's got its roots in Christianity. And if you play out the materialist worldview, Me Too and Church Too doesn't make sense at all. It's only through those who follow Jesus that this idea has, has really spread over specifically the Western part of the world. Uh, Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, I mean Tom Holland, not the web slinger actor, Tom Holland, the historian, uh, wrote in his book, Dominion, how the Christian revolution made the world. And he's writing as an atheist. He's a historian just looking at the rise of the church and Western culture and, and how it spread throughout all the world. And he says this, dignity, which no philosopher had ever taught might be possessed by the stinking, toiling masses, that's what philosophers thought about the, the masses, was for all. There was no human existence so wretched, none so despised or vulnerable that it did not bear witness to the image of God. Divine love for the outcast and derelict demanded that mortals love them too. That every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely self-evident as a truth. Check that phrase out, right? A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign up against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle, as Nietzsche had so contemptuously, contemptuously pointed out, lay not in the French Revolution nor in the Declaration of Independence nor in the Enlightenment, but the Bible. You know, Nietzsche hated religion because he thought it was, religion was a method that the weak used to control the strong. That's why he hated it. He felt might makes right was the ruling way of the world. 
And so we push back against Christianity and really other religions because Christianity introduced this idea that everyone has inherent worth. And not only that, the strong, their responsibility is to look out for the weak. The way of Jesus inverts the power pyramid. So my point in all this is to say that when we campaign against abuse and we talk about rights and victims, we do so from a framework that God has given us in Scripture and revealed through his son Jesus. Speaking truth to power and advocating for abuse victims isn't a secular or a progressive idea. It's a thoroughly Jesus idea. Yet, there's a dilemma here because oftentimes the church has not lived up to her values, specifically in this area. Spiritual abuse is particularly nefarious because pastors and church leaders are expected to model the character of Jesus and we speak God's word to people. So when there's abuse, the damage is often ported onto God and can have long-lasting damage on the abuse victim's faith. Part of the reason why we chose this topic is because there's a podcast right now that is gaining in popularity. Actually, it might be waning right now because it's just there's so much uh, that it goes into, but it's the rise and fall of Mars Hill. If you're familiar with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in Seattle in the early 2000s, there was a, uh, it rose to prominence and this young pastor uh, grew a mega church out of, out of a, you know, I think a meeting from his living room. And uh, as time went on, more and more stories started to be uh, discovered about his abuse of power, how he uh, uh, did power grabs to consolidate it, how it became about his brand and the church's brand and less and less about serving, hurting people. And, and so the podcast, uh, actually we were out with pizza with the pastors and a couple joining us was like, what do you think about spiritual abuse? We've been listening to this podcast. How does your church not do this? And so we, we knew we needed to really speak to this, and that was just really confirmation that we were on the right track. Spiritual abuse is something, it's, I feel the weightiness of this topic, but it is something we have to talk about because so often, church is the least place that's safe talking about abuse. When, when, when abuse victims um, name abuse and they, they, they blow the whistle on power-hungry leaders, oftentimes they're shunned and scorned and their character is defamed. Church often is the least safe place for abuse victims, and it should not be that way. This should be the most safe place for hurting and abused people to come and find rest and, and healing for their souls. So... Um, so what should our position be towards power? I, I hope I've framed this and laid this out, but you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. What should our posture be to, to power? Should we just shun it, spurn it, not, not try and steward it or manage it or worry about it at all? And, and I think the answer to that really is no, because when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus had power and authority, has power and authority. So the solution shouldn't be just to let it all go and let everybody else worry about it. But it actually is to know how did Jesus use his power and his ability and his authority. So in John chapter 8, if you grew up in church or maybe you didn't grow up in church, you, you should be familiar enough with this story. The story is quite ubiquitous, ubiquitous even in our post-Christian culture. It's the story about the woman caught in adultery. And, you know, Sarah mentioned it last week and I told her, you, sh- you stole my scripture. Like, what am I supposed to do now? It was such a good, like, mention of... of 
Anyway, what, you go listen to it if, she, if you, you missed it. But John, uh, John 8, verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Woman, not a, not a, term, a derogatory term, but just a term of, of respect and, and address. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go, go now and leave your life of sin. So the scenario is that Jesus goes intentionally to the temple grounds and, and teaches people while he's there. And sometimes these crowds could swell into the thousands of people, especially if there's some regularity. And Jesus is, is a really interesting person. He's a person of interest at, at this time. Of course, we understand that. And so they, there's anticipation for the teaching. There's some confusion. There's some contentiousness back and forth. And it's at this moment where, where the religious elites know that Jesus is going to be there with the crowds. They bring this woman in as a prop to set up a trap, to interrupt, to confuse, to divide. They humiliate her and they drag her in front of everyone to expose her sin for all to hear about. She exists in an oppressive system, a religious oppressive system towards women. Women uh, could be divorced for almost any reason, burning the bread, the toast for the meal. Um, they could be, you know, if, if the husband found any kind of like lack of, of anything in her or, or any lack of desire, he could give her a writ of divorce and move on to the next wife. So this system was not set up for women to thrive and flourish. And it's that system Jesus inserts himself into. And as we can tell, he does not give way to it. He does not pay uh, heed to it. He has his own way of bringing redemption and, and freedom into it. And uh, the Pharisees and, and the lawyers conveniently forget that it takes two to tango. And her male counterpart is nowhere to be found. So we just see this is, this is really uh, rigged so that she's going to face condemnation. And if Jesus doesn't give the, 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 the right verdict, then he's set up to be um, uh, pushed aside as a religious leader. So what I find compelling about Jesus, what I find beautiful about Jesus is that he embodies meekness and gentleness. Throughout the scripture, the, the, the one character trait that he points to himself is in uh, John 10, I believe it is, take my yoke upon you. He says, I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. That's how Jesus describes himself, his character, his nature. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. We say that, see this played out over and over and over again in the scripture. He, in this scenario, doesn't take the opportunity to hum humiliate his detractors. He doesn't fight fire with fire and call them out. I mean, the humility. Uh, uh, Jesus, we, we get, Jesus is like the smartest person alive, right? Like he created and sustains the entire universe. 
He can do trigonometry in his sleep. Like it's that level, next level stuff, right? And what he doesn't do is just go and get into a debate over scripture with these Pharisees. He stoops down, he goes low, and he digs in the dirt. I love that. Instead of towering over the crowd as the supreme authority he is, he stoops low and slows the pace. As the crowd's energy swells, as it demands a verdict, he maintains composure and invites contemplation of the situation. Jesus is fascinating to me because he behaves so differently than any of us would. And he masterfully navigates a tense situation and spares a life in the process. Now, here's the interesting thing that if you have your Bibles open uh, or if they're on your app, you should pay attention to this because this section in particular is oftentimes bracketed or in italics because the earliest manuscripts that we have that we use for most of our Bible translations come from the fourth century and, and they're not in those manuscripts, meaning some people try and make the case that this is not in the actual text, this isn't in the Bible, this portion right here is extra biblical. Now, here's the interesting thing, because does this mean the story uh, doesn't count as scripture? And, and I would say not exactly. So what's interesting is that we have records of sermons preached in the second and third century that actually, before, so before the, the, the fourth century copyists copied all the manuscripts, we have sermons referencing these verses and the adulterous woman. So we, the, there have been pastors and preachers throughout early church history specifically that referenced this scenario and included it in their liturgy and in their preaching schedules. So we know they had access to it at one point in time. What happened then between the third and fourth century? Why did copyists exclude it in ongoing manuscripts? So there's a, there's a, couple, uh, there's a couple interpretations of, of exactly why. Augustine, who was writing in the late 300, so about the same time, speculates that it was removed because it can be interpreted as being permissive towards adultery. We can't have Jesus giving permission to all that bad stuff. Now, he argues for its veracity because it seems so much like Jesus to do this, doesn't it? When you look at Jesus and the other narratives uh, through the Gospels of his life, this just it just seems like Jesus to do this, to respond this way to the crowd, to forgive and then command that she leave her life of sin. It just seems like Jesus. And that's what Augustine said. He said, this is just Jesus. And furthermore, some copyists uh, would, or some, some commentators and scholars would even press the issue further saying that early copyists removed it simply because these verses are too grace-filled, specifically towards a woman. We can't have Jesus being that nice to women because church communities in the second, third, and fourth century, they, they veered into legalism. And so they wanted to keep a tight rein. They developed their own oppressive systems. Unfortunately, when we get away from the way of Jesus, we veer into just licentiousness and permission towards anything or legalism that wants to constrict and perpetuate oppressive religious systems. So some scholars say that's exactly what happened. They became legalists, and this was way too grace-filled for legalism, so it had to go. Now, I say this not to undermine the truthfulness of the scriptures, specifically the gospels and, and the life of Jesus. I just, I just want to point out that we are not immune in the church of Jesus from veering into oppressive systems that seek to subjugate. We have to be on guard. We'll get into this a little bit later on how we do that, but we have to be vigilant 
because oppressive power seeks to subjugate people for its agenda. So again, the solution though isn't to disavow all uses of power. We have been given power. We have been given a will to, to, to make our choices happen and influence people around us. Again, we need to look further at Jesus' life to know exactly how we do that. And Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, has this great, uh, these great verses, this great just, just, it's one of my favorite portions of Scripture in all the Bible because it just talks about the humility of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians 2, verse 3. He's writing to this young church in Philippi, and he says this to them. Because you follow Jesus and you're seeking to emulate him, here's how we do this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility. Guys, I mean, just if you grew up reading these verses, just pretend you'd never read them before and pretend like, I know to some degree we've so, so been jaded by relationships, specifically in the church, but like what if we did this? Like, what if God's command to do this actually came wrapped in grace, the power to actually walk it out? Paul says this, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. You can do this because Jesus did it. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in, the, in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Man, it's so good. If, if you're newer to the faith and, and you hear about memorizing parts of the Bible, this is a good place to start. This is a good place to have the mindset of Jesus who didn't use his power and authority for his own gain but went to the cross to pour it out, to redeem his people, to build a family, to use it for the good of others. So though Jesus shares all the power and all the glory, he didn't hoard it. He didn't use it to oppress. He didn't use it to accuse. He didn't use it to bolster himself. He took the lowly position of a servant. John 13 says that he, built, he knelt down in front of his disciples and washed their dirty feet. The God of the universe stooped down in humility and then says, go and do likewise to each other. Jesus shows us how to use power. He uses power to disarm the devil and empty hell and not because it benefited him one bit, but because he is love and love will have its way. Many want power without the towel. Many see power, influence, wealth, and authority as a means to get what they want, to build themselves up and make a name for themselves. And God is clear, none of that, which is built this way, will stand. There will be no reward for power and wealth that's accumulated 
to build one's own kingdom. But at the end of the age, only that which is built on love, meaning the active goodwill of another person, will remain and be credited to us for reward. Paul says to value others above yourself because Jesus takes the value system of the world that says take power, it says might is right, the ends justify the means, and he inverts it. And we've been given God's spirit to live like Jesus, to live from this reality. Now, you have to understand, living from an inverted power system is really weird and awkward in our age. Have you seen the movie Tenet? Where one part of the movie, they're going forward in time, and the other part, they're going backwards in time. And it's a brilliant movie. It just looks really weird. And you're trying to figure out, probably about three quarters of the, way, uh, of the movie, like, Christopher Nolan is brilliant, but I have no idea what's going on. But the soundtrack is amazing, too, so I'm here for it. Right? Like, that's what it feels like. It feels like living inverted in our day and age, where everyone has a stream of power and might and authority and the way of Jesus goes low to wipe off feet. Tom Holland again in his book Dominion says this, to be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. Again, he's an atheist. He's, he knows us better than some of us do. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe. That serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit living like a fire still blows upon the world. Amen? We could say amen to an atheist when he speaks truth, right? And in Europe and North America and the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian, all are heirs to the same revolution. A revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. So it is of the utmost importance that we step into this space and that the church of Jesus looks like her savior. So in their book, A Church Called Tove, Father Scott McKnight and daughter Lauren Berenger write about, the, about forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. And so the book is, it's a gut punch. It's fantastic, I recommend it. But it is there, uh, they were at uh, Willow Creek and it's them processing the, the toxic culture that was forming in Willow Creek and after Bill Hybels' fall, um, them chronicling like the healing journey and how to avoid uh, being a Willow Creek and how to be a church called Tove, which just means goodness. And so they have, they have something called the Circle of Tove in their book that I just, I just have to do 30,000 foot view over this, but it's so good. I would recommend that you'll read it for yourself. So to have a, a Tove, a goodness culture in the church starts with nurturing empathy. We resist a culture of narcissism by becoming familiar with the stories of those who are often overlooked, women, minorities, houseless, divorced, disabled, widowed, and so on. 
We want to nurture grace. And we do that by resisting a fear culture, by reminding ourselves the same forgiveness has been extended towards all, not just extra special holy people. We put people first. We resist the institutional creep by insisting that we are here to serve people and not that people are here to serve us. It was, it was interesting. Last night, I was on Instagram or something, and I caught a video of a woman named Sarah Blakely who founded a company a while back called Spanx. If you don't know about Spanx, it helps all your belly rolls be in the place you want them. You can ask your wife or your sister, don't. I just wouldn't if you don't know what I'm talking about, guys. But what she did, she sold a major portion of her company and got a like $1.5 billion buyout. And the video was her announcing to her company, and it's, it's like you know 99.9% women who, who work for this company, and they're in this room, and they've got champagne, and uh, you know, all this stuff, and they're, Insta- they're, they're Facebook living this. She announces, because th- this, I, I forget how she set it up, but she basically said, as a gift to you, the employees, for getting us here, I've bought you each a round trip ticket, two round trip tickets to anywhere in the world. And they're like freaking out, all the women, you know, they're like tearing. They got masks on, but you see just the waterworks swelling up. And then she goes, and because you probably want to go out to a nice dinner, I'm also giving you each $10,000 as a gift. And I'm just telling you, like, I got a little teary. Someone's cutting onions in my house because I'm like, oh, that's so good. Like, because I'm telling you, if a company can do this, if a company can be tove to the people who work there and make up the company and serve, in that company, the church should be miles ahead. I love it. Go watch it. It's amazing. Okay. Tell the truth. We resist false narratives by speaking plainly and openly about things, not gossiping, exaggerating, or pretending. We nurture justice in a, in a Tove culture. We resist the loyalty culture by welcoming work for equality, fairness, and impartiality. And, and what it means... Um, Loyalty can be a virtue, but loyalty can be used as a weapon to silence victims. Like just be loyal to your leaders, be loyal to the organization. Don't speak out, don't speak up. And so that's, it's the, it's the dark side of loyalty that they're, that they're talking about. Nurture service. We resist celebrity culture by recognizing the sacrifice of everyone for the mission of God. We nurture Christ-likeness. We resist the leader culture by focusing on character formation, not accomplishments as proof that the Spirit is moving in someone's life. So what I want to do here, I want to get a little, I want to get a little bit more personal and practical for us because I don't want, I don't want this to be an out there, their problem. This is a Mars Hill thing. This is a Willow Creek thing. Like, uh, I just want to press on this and I know this is already weighty, but just indulge me for a second. Because I want us to internalize this message and, and be asking the question, maybe how and in what ways does an unhealthy culture exist in the environment around me? Now, what I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that a couple of these things make you an abuser. I don't, I don't think it works like that. Being an abuser is like intentional, first grieving of the spirit, but intentional choices to accumulate power to silence victims. I don't think a couple missteps and you misstep into abuse. However, we want nothing to do with the tools of abuse in our lives. Whether they show up in our lives as control and manipulation or gaslighting and threatening. And so maybe have you seen this in your life show up? 
When you reach in your tool bag to pull out a behavior when you're aggravated or fearful or not getting your way, what comes out? Are you the husband that shoots a look to your spouse? Not now, not ever, don't bring it up. Or maybe are you the friend that when you feel upset, you let loose a tirade of gossip to let everyone know how unwell the other person is. Now, I think we've all been there to some degree in our lives, but the question for us is, are we going to stay there? Because when negative behavior arises, we want to say, well, I just had a bad day, or I was really stressed at the moment. And we kind of separate the behavior from our character. Like, have you heard the phrase, I don't have a racist bone in my body when someone does a racism? You're just kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure about that, right? But at the same time, as followers of Jesus, Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out is what's in there. And so the work of Jesus in our lives must so form us that we become love, that we let go of those power moves and the ways that we try and just maybe minimally get a heads up or leg up on people or try and get ahead or put our spouse in their place or let our friend in a passive aggressive way know that we're upset. Not just managing our bad behavior so we hope it doesn't happen again, but that we become the kind of people where gentleness and meekness take shape and we become the kind of people where tolerance of abuse would never occur because we don't tolerate it within ourselves. Diane Langberg in her book, Redeeming Power, says this, the trashing, demeaning, humiliating, and labeling of other believers is horrifying and grieves God. Hello, politics, right? The, the, the maligning and labeling, like that, that, is, that is like the, the culture right now of just labeling and dismissing people. And she says, not in the Christian church. A call to truth which we must issue is always to be done with gentleness, humility, and dignity, for we are calling one made in God's image. Opinions are not to govern character no matter how strongly we hold them. Issues are not to govern character no matter how biblical they are. Character is to be rooted and grounded in likeness to Christ so that when we express our thoughts, we manifest his character and none other. So let me pull us back for a second, okay? Let's just kind of take a breath. I'm, 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 I'm veering into landing territory, so just hang in there for a second. Let me pull us back and say, so how do we, Tallgrass at the Well, as we've been collaborating and we're heading to full merger, how does our church community intend to safeguard against misuses of power? So I have four things, just briefly. And, and this is more conversation beginning than an exhaustive list of everything. But Ben and I, point one, Ben and I, are more moving towards a co-leadership model of pastoral ministry that doesn't exist in a lot of other places. Actually, we had one friend, one consultant say, you guys are crazy. And we listen to Mars Hill podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and go, maybe this is what God's doing in the hour of the earth that we're in. He's getting rid of the CEO-driven church model to the mutually submissive model of multiple leaders. So we're taking that seriously, and, and we think that is just the everyday practice of mutual submission where we're building each other up and, and advocating for each other is a, a good first step, and, and doing that at the highest, highest level of leadership. Also, we have a robust elder team who are intentional in not being an echo chamber, but voices who speak into decision-making. 
Uh, we have two women on that team, Alicia Hillegeist and my wife, Sarah, uh, because it's important in a Tove culture to include often excluded voices. That is so very important to us to make sure that we have a good uh, uh, culture here. Third, we have a robust process for financial decision-making that is transparent for anyone who would inquire. And finally, we have, not finally, but my fourth point, we have systems in place for background checks for anyone who would work with children or minors. This is so very important, um, and including myself. I've been background checked because I'm around kids. Even though I have kids, and I think I'm good with kids, and I think I'm good with other people's kids, we still want to do the hard work of making sure we're above board, above reproach, and not coming anywhere close to the appearance of evil by overlooking that. that is, those are four things that we are doing to ensure we have a Tove culture. So we would be remiss, finally, in failing to address and just acknowledge any here who have been a victim of abuse. Research shows us that one in four women in their lifetime in America have experienced physical abuse. So what does Jesus offer in the way of healing? So I want you to know a few things. First, I want you to know if you've been abused, I want you to know that we are so sorry for that, that that happened. And we want you to know that you didn't deserve that. No one deserves to be abused. Everyone carries inherent worth and dignity as an image bearer. And I'm so sorry if you've gone through that. And we rush not with a fix, but to sit with you and lament and grief that that happened to you. And I want you to know that we are here for you, that our pastoral team includes trauma-informed uh, staff who would be more than willing to sit with you and grieve with you and lament and process what next steps might be for healing and the journey that Jesus has you on. And I, there's, a, there's a Japanese art form called kintsugi that means golden joinery. And it's, it's, an, it's an old Japanese practice of repairing broken pottery. Because in, in the West, a lot of times, if something breaks, we throw it away. But there are conservationalist communities that actually see greater beauty in the brokenness. And in Kintsugi, uh, there's a unique method that celebrates each artifact's unique history and emphasizes its fractures and breaks instead of hiding or disguising them. In fact, Kintsugi often makes the repaired piece even more beautiful than the original, revitalizing it with a new look and giving it a second life. When plates, bowls, and other pottery have been broken, they're re rejoined together with a special tree sap lacquer dusted with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. Kintsugi is a beautiful reminder that at whatever place we've experienced brokenness in our lives, that Jesus came for those that were hurting. Jesus came as a rescuer. He said, the healthy don't need a doctor but the sick. So Jesus came for us. And in his way and in his timing, he walks with us through our journey to put us back together. Our healing was purchased with royal blood, and it's his blood that holds us together as we walk this out as a community together. So I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and I just I want to leave you this, with this one question to sit with today. How can we form a goodness culture 
in our family and in our church community. You, have, you may have heard something that relates directly to your situation today. What I would simply ask is that you sit with that. And I'm going to actually have you stand so you can stand maybe with that during worship. And ask, is there something in my character that is not aligned with the character of Jesus? Are there times where I haven't spoken up and I know that I've needed to? And I would just invite you to, to dialogue with the Holy Spirit about that and what your next step would be to create tov, goodness, all around you. And so every week, we are in the habit of uh, reciting the Apostles' Creed together and then celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Again, these are grounding practices that we've implemented for this message series because of the, the tumult that we feel ourselves uh, as we wrestle together with these things. These are grounding practices. The, the Apostles' Creed ha- has been uh, recited by churches all over the world, almost throughout almost all of church history, as a confessional creed of what we believe to be true about Jesus. So I invite you to read this together with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So next, I would invite the the Lord's Supper servants to come on up. Um, This again is a grounding practice for us. It's been celebrated by churches all throughout church history. Um, Jesus invited his friends to partake of a meal with him. To, get, to prepare them for his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as he, as he broke the bread, he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is being broken for you. Take and eat. And then after the meal, he took the glass of wine. We use grape juice here. Uh, he took the glass and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that is shed for you. Take and drink and celebrate until I return. So we do this every week during this series as a grounding practice to tie us to church history, to tradition, and to Jesus himself. So let me pray over us, and and when I'm done praying, you can come up the center aisle and then return to your seats through the side aisles, okay? So Jesus, we are here in your presence together, and we give you our yes. We who believe in what's been recited in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in you, God. And so you have invited us to eat with you, to be in your presence together, and to receive healing from you by the power of your spirit. So we receive all those things in your name. We pray, amen. Amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.